0: Today's scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 23 for 25. So if you'd like to open up your Bibles, do follow along? If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister... I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. As we continue our series in the short letter to the Colossians. We're making it a little bit longer as we go through verse by verse here, or a few verses at a time. You remember that Paul is writing this letter to a small church, a small little town of Colossae, because their pastor, Epaphras, came to see him concerned about the teaching and infiltration of some false teachers working their way into the body of believers teaching some false uh, truths. They were trying to convince the young Christians that Jesus was not God, and therefore, it was not enough. Jesus was not enough to provide salvation, and so really didn't have the power to save people. There were other things that you had to add, Jesus plus. And in verses 15 to 19, Paul strongly refutes the notion that Jesus is not God by making one of the most incredible statements in all of Scripture, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. That is an amazing statement about who Jesus Christ is. Not only is he God, but he created everything, and he is personal, and he cares and loves us so much. So much that he literally is holding all things together. And we talked about that. He is that strong nuclear force holding everything in creation together. And all this shows that he is supreme. He is Lord over all. And in verse 19 he says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness, all his God's fullness dwell in him, Jesus that's the Christmas message, is it not? Christmas is coming up. That's the whole story of the incarnation, God in Christ coming as a human being into, the, into this earth, coming to the world to save the world. And Paul is saying as he's writing this, of course he is God. And he is supreme over everything. There is no doubt then in verses 20 to 23 that we looked at last week, he refutes the second false teaching that Jesus doesn't have the power to save people. Not only does he have the power, Paul says, he is the only one who does. He's the only one who can. He is the only way to the Father. A sacrifice had to be made. Blood had to be offered, had to be shed. And Jesus was that perfect sacrifice, which allowed reconciliation to take place between us And God. And at the end of verse 23, Paul then makes a transition uh, by saying this This is the gospel that you heard. And we've been singing about the gospel of Christ. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Paul is saying, All that I've just explained to you in the first part of this letter. All that is a gospel in a nutshell, the same gospel that you've already heard, and the same gospel that's being preached everywhere. I've been made, he said, I have become a servant, a minister to preach it. And then he launches into a description of what that ministry involves and how he's been faithful to it. And it's a ministry to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. He actually does this quite often in his letters. I don't know if you've noticed that as you've read the different letters that he wrote that we have in Scripture. Um, He does it for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think, is to establish his credibility. This was not his choice to be preaching. He's saying, I didn't choose this, I was made a minister. Secondly, even in that choosing, I think he's expressing in an amazement the awe over what Jesus did in his life. He knew what he had been. He had been a persecutor of the church. He had been a persecutor of Christ himself. And he had experienced such a miraculous transformation in his life that he knew the power of which he was speaking. The power of Jesus Christ in his own life. And you remember in verse 1 here in Colossians that we looked at uh, quite a while ago, a number of weeks ago, Paul began this letter by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. It was his will, not my will. And here, starting in verse 24, now he starts expanding upon what that phrase in verse 1 means. And he begins, uh, begins to carefully detail His ministry. What we find here is Paul talks about his own ministry, um, that there are eight different aspects of ministry of the servant of God, not only of Paul. Eight different aspects that should characterize the life of anybody who serves the Lord Jesus Christ in any capacity, anybody who is called to teach or to preach or to minister within the framework of the body of Christ. This morning we're going to be looking at four. And then in a couple of weeks after our missions conference, we'll look at the last four of them. But the first thing that he does is talk about the source of ministry, the source of ministry. Notice in verse 13, he said, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. The phrase of which refers back to the gospel that you heard. So that's. The source, that's where it's coming from. And he says, and I have become a, <clears throat> excuse me, I have become a servant. Some translations use the word minister, but that comes, kind of comes up with the idea of a title, you know, the minister of the church, the minister, kind of a, more of a title thing. But, and that's not the connotation here that Paul is getting across. The, the Greek uh, word literally means to be a servant, to serve, to minister. That's where the minister part comes in, to serve. One who serves a master. And that's what Paul became. He became, or he was made to be a servant of the gospel by the will of God. How did that happen? Well, he didn't go through all the things that he thought of as a childhood, of what I would like to be when I grow up, and then any, meeny, me I, I think I'll be a minister. That wasn't in his thinking at all. But if we go back to chapter 26 of Acts, we find out exactly how he became a servant of the gospel. I'm sure you remember this story. Uh, Paul was on his way to Damascus, probably on his way to kill some more Christians. That uh, That was his focus. And he recounts what happened to King Agrippa here in chapter 26, starting at verse 13. Listen to what he says. About noon, King Agrippa, he's speaking to the king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companion. Plural, companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Is it hard for you to kick? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant. You see? He was appointed by Jesus. wasn't Paul's decision. And as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you, once again, I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and, place am- and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's the gospel that he was preaching. The salvation that he was to preach to the Gentiles, to non-Jews. Now Jesus basically said, Paul, I have chosen you to go to the Gentiles, I hereby make you my servant to do my bidding. Folks, it's the Lord who makes ministers. It's the Lord who calls us to service. They are called by him to serve him in any way he wants. Paul is very conscious of this and, and lets all his readers know how he received the right to proclaim the gospel. In Romans chapter 15, verse 15, he writes, I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister, to be a servant, same word, of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He's telling them, I'm only doing that which God has called me to do and I am being faithful doing it. Folks, we don't choose the ministry God desires of us. Have you ever thought about that? We like to have a choice, don't we? We like to make decisions. That's that's how we're made up. We we don't want other people telling us. And that falls easy to fall into that in a church setting either. But it's God who calls. God chooses it, and then we are either obedient or disobedient. And it's not always something we may feel comfortable with or what we feel gifted to do. Public speaking was not something that I ever imagined doing. That's not part of my personality. I'd rather hide in the back and just be quiet, have nobody notice me. But when I was in college, I knew what God was calling me to, so I purposely signed up for a speech course in college. If I'm going to be doing some public speaking. I better figure out how, how to do this. And the first assignment, it was a short speech that we had to do. First assignment, I got up and I started going on my introduction and I blanked on a word and I couldn't think of another word. I couldn't think a way around it. I started hyperventilating and I felt all the blood and I thought, "Oh my goodness, I'm going to fall down and faint." And I said, "I'm sorry, I got to sit down." How embarrassing is that? When God calls, it's not always something that we feel gifted in. We can't use giftedness as an excuse not to minister within the body. There are areas of ministry within the church that need ministering, that need help. We talked a little bit in our uh, announcement time this morning. We need help in the nursery. We need help back at the tech booth. There are other areas of ministry. Oh, I'm not gifted. Well, again... Maybe that's not a gifting, but we can learn. And if we step out and say, yes, I'm I'm open to doing whatever you want, Lord, he will then provide, whether it's a gifting or the wherewithal or the strength and the wisdom to accomplish that. If we have a heart that is willing, he will gift us to the extent that he wants to use us. In writing to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1, verse 11, he says, And of this gospel I was appointed a preacher, and an apostle and a teacher. He was appointed all of that. So, who made Paul a minister? God. Who then is a source of ministry? God. Whatever gifts we've received to operate within the body of Christ, who gives us those gifts? According to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we are told that the Holy Spirit distributes them to each one just as He determines. Again, not our choice. I think so often Christians are confused about ministry or what they should be doing for the Lord and they sit back and wait to figure out what gifting they may have before deciding whether they want to minister or not. That's not a choice that we have. We should be asking God, how or where do you want me to minister? How do you want me to serve? And then say, okay. God doesn't want us to argue with him. Moses did that. You remember that when he was calling Moses? And God's wrath burned against him. But when we say, okay, then God will give us a strength. He will give us a gift for that ministry that he has chosen us for, not for the one that we have chosen. If I look back in my lifetime, there are so many things that God called me to do, and I kind of did a double take. Excuse me, what? No, I I can't do that. I have no idea how to do that. He said, go, do it. Okay. It's amazing how we saw then how God, God works through that. It is God who calls us, it is God who puts us into ministry, it's not something that we choose. Paul reiterates this in verse 25 of our passage here in Colossians 1. I have become its servant, again talking about the gospel, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Folks, it wasn't just Paul who was being commissioned. God has commissioned each one of us. No matter who you are, no matter who I am, as a Christian, the Spirit of God has given us certain gifts, and if He's given us those gifts or those abilities, He's called us to minister those gifts, and we need to do that. It's a serious responsibility that He has given to us. And if you have a gift of the Spirit or ability that the Spirit has given us, and we all do that, then we are stewards of something that belongs to God. It's His. And he said, here, here's something I want you to use for me. And we are to minister that. We are to serve those who are in need of it. And if we step back, if we step back and refuse to minister and refuse to participate within the church body, we are being disobedient to God's calling. And we are grieving the Holy Spirit who has gifted us. There's only one reason he gifts us is so that we can use it for his glory and honor. 1 Peter 4, verse 10 says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Why? He goes on to say in verse 11, So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. We're not looking for the glory. We're not looking for the kudos from other people in the church. We're doing it for God's glory. Are you serving the Lord in the body right now? Or are you grieving him? Serious question. Secondly, Paul shares the attitude of the ministry. The attitude of the ministry, as we serve the Lord Jesus Christ, recognizing God has called us, what should be our attitude? What should be the spirit in which we serve? Look at verse 24. I'm just going to read the first three verses of excuse me, the first three words of that verse. Now I rejoice. So what's the attitude of the ministry? Three letters. Joy. Attitude of ministry ought to be joy. We used to sing a children's song. Uh, some of you remember Jesus and others in you. How many remember that song? What a wonderful way to spell joy. Jesus and others in you in the heart of each girl and each boy. J is for Jesus, for he takes first place. O is for others that we meet face to face. Y is for you. In whatever you do, put yourself last and spell joy. We tried looking, looking it up to sing today and we couldn't find the music. <laughs> Great song. The spirit of the ministry is joy. Whatever our ministry is, we ought to be enjoying it. It ought to bring joy. I think it's a sad reality that many ministering Christians don't have or have lost that right attitude. We allow personal issues to get in the way of ministry, and it's easy to blame people or situations, and we, it's easy for people to start stepping back from ministry. If you step back from ministry in the body, you need to ask yourself, why? Is that what God has asked me to do? The gifts are given to build up the body of Christ. When Jesus is in, when Jesus is in our life, is he a priority? Now, the last I looked, the word yaj is not in the dictionary, Y-O-J. That's where you take first place. You and others in Jesus spells Yaj. <laughs> Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 to 7, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, did I skip you? Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given, why? For the common good. For the common good. It's easy to get discouraged because of circumstances, isn't it? It's easy to get tired, (laughs) absolutely. Paul did. At one point he said, I have continual sorrow and heaviness of heart concerning my people Israel, but he never lost the internal joy. Paul's joy was generated because of what Christ had done for him. He never lost sight of that, and we can never lose sight of that. Paul's joy was always based on the perpendicular, not on circumstances on the side. That's why he he can write in 1 Corinthians 10.31, So in whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, because that's what we're doing. That's who we're serving. This brings us to the third point. We've got to know the source of the ministry and understand the attitude of the ministry, because there is going to be suffering in ministry. Now, we don't like to hear that. Look at verse The rest of verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. How does that work? And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction. He starts out by saying, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. At the moment of his writing this letter, he was a prisoner. He was a prisoner in Rome. He tells us that in chapter 4. And if we go back to Acts chapter 9, this is the incident of Paul's conversion again when it actually happened. And we see Ananias here um, in, in, that, in that story. Ananias to whom Paul goes to after his blindness and, he, and after he encountered Jesus. Ananias is kind of arguing with God here at this point. And he's saying, God, I, I've heard about this guy Saul. He's, he's, he's a scary dude. I don't want anything really to do with him. Verse 15 we read, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument. Again, God's choice. To proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Then he says this, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. From the very beginning, God said, Paul, you're going to be paying a high price. You're going to be a prisoner a lot. You're going to be persecuted and suffer a lot. But you know, Paul never saw himself as a prisoner of Rome. Never did. Every time he talks about being a prisoner, he says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He always saw it that way in in the small letter of Philemon, one chapter, verse 1, it says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, now a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Verse 23, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, Epaphras. Isn't that interesting? Pastor from uh, Colossians at that point? He sees all his sufferings as a fulfillment of prophecy. He says, hey, I rejoice in my suffering for you. It's what the Lord predicted It's what Jesus told me was going to happen. This is great. It just helps me to believe in him even more because he told me this is going to happen. It's happening. Because exactly what he said would happen, I see his word being fulfilled in me. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction that he promised. So he says, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. How about why? Philippians 1 verse 29, he says, For it has been granted to you. That's a very positive term. What's, what's he granted to me? It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Well, thanks for nothing, right? What kind of a grant is that? Why do we have to suffer? I don't get it. But remember who our struggle in this battle is really against. We need to keep that in the forefront of our minds. It's not against people. It's easy to start thinking that way. It's against Satan, against the principalities of this dark world. Ephesians chapter 6. And as long as we are in this world, we are in Satan's way. We are a hindrance to him and to what he wants to accomplish. We are a blockage to him. And so he is going to come against us and do battle against us. That's why we suffer. So how can we have joy in suffering? Well, let me give you five very quick thoughts about that. Number one, it brings us nearer to Christ. Paul said in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings. How does that work? When we suffer for the cause of Christ, that is when the world hates us, when the world persecutes us, when the world rejects us and mocks our Christ, in a sense that suffering helps us to understand Christ better, drawing closer to Him. We, we understand what Christ went through. Jesus Himself said in John fifteen eighteen, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. 2 Timothy 3.12, we read, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Living a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So I think there's joy in suffering because it brings us nearer to understanding Christ and what He went through. Secondly, when we suffer, it brings us an assurance of salvation. Now, don't misunderstand me here. Absolute assurance of my salvation is through Christ and through the Holy Spirit who is living in me and the transformation of my life. But we can also be reassured in our own minds and hearts of our salvation. Listen, in 1 Peter 4.14, if you are insulted, persecuted, ridiculed, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. That's a good thing. Praise the Lord. For the Spirit of, the glory, spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That's the proof. You're being ridiculed. You're being persecuted. Oh, that's great. That must mean that the Holy Spirit's actually living me and, and it's visible and it's evident. When we suffer, we can have this tremendous confidence of the, that the presence of the Holy Spirit is living in our life and assurance of our salvation. Thirdly, it brings a future reward when we're willing to step out for Christ and be bold and to speak the truth, and suffer the consequences sometimes. It doesn't have to be every time, but sometimes if we do, God promises a reward. I love rewards. I don't know about you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for our light and momentary troubles, what you're going through now is just a moment, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. All the troubles that we are fussing about now, What we're going to receive far outweighs all of that. Now, that's not the purpose of our suffering, but that eternal glory is the result of our suffering. I'm not going to go out there suffer to see if I can get a bigger reward. That's not what Paul is saying here. But if we're being obedient to Christ and we suffer for it, God has a reward for us, and it outweighs it all. Fourthly, it brings salvation to others. We suffer because we are obedient to Christ's commission to go and make disciples. And when we do that, again, we're stepping into Satan's dark domain. He doesn't want us there. And he's going to come against us. But it's only in the preaching of the gospel and our suffering because of it that others will hear and call on the name of the Lord. Paul says in Philippians 2 17, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. He says, there's a price to p- pay, he says, but it's worth it. The health and wealth preachers of our day have it all wrong. They preach that if you just, you just need to have faith you need have the right amount of faith to name and claim your blessings and your wealth and your health and if you're suffering there's a problem with your faith i would contend folks that if you're not suffering then perhaps there's a problem with your faith perhaps we need to ask ourselves why am i not suffering and I think the fifth, fifth thing is that it brings frustration to Satan. Have you ever thought about that? I think it brings frustration to Satan. We suffer because Satan attacks us, usually through other people. Why does he attack us? To discourage us, to weaken us, to make us ineffective, useless in the hands of the Lord. And when we turn that around and begin to rejoice, remember, the the joy is the attitude, we destroy the effects of the suffering. Remember when Paul and Silas were thrown into jail because of their preaching? What did they do? (laughs) They rejoiced. They sang songs of praise. And what was the result? An earthquake? Chains falling off? The jailer and his whole family coming to Christ and being baptized that that same night? How frustrating must that have been for Satan? He thought he'd finally done away with Paul and Silas. Satan doesn't want us to believe it, but we have the victory over him. And our joy should be showing it. Now coming back to verse 24 as we wrap this up he says I rejoice in what I am suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction what in the world does that second part mean it sounds like Paul is saying that there's something that is lacking in Christ's afflictions because Christ didn't suffer enough we now have to suffer to make up for it there are actually some religious groups and churches in the broad, within the broader spectrum of Christianity that actually believe that and teach that. But folks, if that were true, that would negate what Paul just said in the previous verses in, the first, in this first chapter. The fact that we have peace and that we have reconciliation with God. He says, by His blood, by the blood of Jesus, shed on the cross, and by Christ's physical body through death to present you what? We talked about it last week. Holy in His sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. It's all taken care of in Christ. Paul is absolutely convinced that Christ's suffering and afflictions were all sufficient. Nothing needed to be added to them. But Paul is saying beyond the fact that Christ's predictions, we mentioned that in the beginning of the message, were coming true in him, and therefore he rejoices, he's saying that what he is receiving in his body, in his beatings, in his imprisonment, in the different things that he had to go through, those were actually intended for Christ. You see, the enemies of Jesus hated him, hated Jesus so much with an insatiable hate. So much so that even after they crucified him, they no longer had him to attack. So who did they attack? The church? The Christians? They began to persecute the church and persecute the Christians. Why did they whip believers? Why did they burn them at the stake? Why did they throw them to the lions? Was it because they hated those individual personalities? No. It was because the believers stood in the place of Christ. You see, Christ continued to live in them. Christ continues to live in us. Folks, we represent Christ. Paul knew this very well. He was a part of it before his conversion. He knew what was going on. And as Saul, the Pharisee, it was his mission to persecute and kill Christians. Do you remember what Jesus asked Paul when he knocked him off his horse that... uh, that day, he didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the Christians? He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Paul is rejoicing and he writes to the believers in Colossae and he says, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh the affliction the world intends for Christ. Paul says, All of this is for your sake. For the church. All of this is to win you to Christ. All of this is to mature you in Christ. It's all for you. I pay the price to win people to Christ. I pay the price to build the church. They stone me, they beat me, and I'm okay with that. In fact, I rejoice because of it. So, what's the source of ministry? It's God. What's the attitude of ministry? It's joy. What's the suffering of the ministry? It's a willingness to go out and accept the blows from the world that are meant for Christ, and rejoice in it, even and even be counted, to even be counted worthy of it. And then the fourth thing here, Paul presents a scope, the scope of his ministry. We find that at the end of verse 25 I have become its servant, the servant of the gospel, by the commission of God that God gave me, the source of his ministry to present to you the Word of God in its fullness. That's the scope of his ministry. He could have said, you know what? I've got bigger plans to preach to the world. I've been given ministry to all the Gentiles, and you guys there are classy. You know, you're a puny little church in a puny little town. Not really very significant. I've got better. I, I just don't want to waste my valuable time on that. I've got bigger things to do. But Paul knew what his commission was at that moment. And it was to present the word of God in its fullness to those believers in Colossae. Now folks, God had much bigger plans. But he didn't have to tell Paul about it. Paul had no idea that someday a small church in Ann Arbor in Sio Township would be studying his letter to that little church in Colossae, and the Holy Spirit will be teaching us about what he wrote then. You see, it's easy to get discouraged in ministry, isn't it? We see other ministries that seemingly are going like gangbusters. And God tells us to be faithful to the ministry he has called us to, and let him take care of the rest. Think about Jesus' ministry. Even he was limited It's kind of an interesting thought. You see, ministry is not about how broad it is. It's how deep it is. God says, I'll take care, or if you you take care of the depth by my leading, and I'll take care of the breadth. I'll take care of the results. How did Jesus limit his ministry? He only did God's will. We read that over and over again. I only do what the Father tells me. That's it. Nothing else. John 5.30, he says, I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. He sent me. He gave me a purpose. I do what he tells me to. That's it. Secondly, he had a time limitation. He had three years of ministry. And everything in its time. How many times as you've read through the Gospel of John, do you read, His hour had not yet come. He had a sense of timing, and there were certain things to be done at certain times, and until the right time was there, until God's time, God's will, he didn't do them. The third limitation that he put on his ministry is the scope of his ministry. In Matthew 15, 24, he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. He came to talk to the Jews. That was the scope of his ministry. To God's chosen people, to call them back from having departed from God. And even within that limited scope of people, he said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I haven't come to, to talk to the hypocritical, super religious, super self righteous people. He wanted those who recognized their sin. Again, the scope of his ministry was narrow. That scope was then expanded as we look at Paul's life to the Gentiles. Fourthly, he limited himself to the people he discipled. See, God had much bigger plans. He started with 12. He started with 12. For a strong, deep core of believers, he began a movement then to reach the rest of the world. See, Paul knew from whom his commission came. He knew the attitude of joy that he was to have even the midst of suffering that would come along with his ministry, and he knew exactly what his scope of ministry was at any given moment. Folks, we are each commissioned by God for ministry, by the gifting and empowering of the Holy Spirit. Are we, being servants of Jesus, carrying out that ministry within the body? Are we being those servants and doing it with joy, despite setbacks, despite discouragements and frustrations? Are we doing it for the Lord? Can we sing from our heart, It is well with my soul. In a moment, we're going to sing a prayer for our closing song. I trust this will be your prayer. Listen, make me a servant, humble and meek, Lord, let me lift up those who are weak, and may the prayer of my heart always be, make me a servant today. Father, this morning, I trust that is our prayer. No matter who we are, you have called us to serve you. You are our master, you are our Lord, and Father, you are such a loving and gracious Lord and master. We talked in our spiritual growth class about the the yoke that people often feel burdened with, things that, are going, uh, that, that weighs us down, but Jesus says, my yoke is light because I am there, I'm lifting it up, and I'm working with you. Jesus is not a taskmaster. Father, I pray that you would let us be able to see ourselves as your servant, and no matter what you would ask us to do, say yes, with the expectation that you are going to empower us, and you are going to give us the wherewithal to accomplish what you have asked us to do, and your name will be glorified. In Jesus' name.